Welcome to the Power of Love show sponsored by the Dee Dee Jackson Foundation, where we shine a light on loss and grief and how it impacts our lives. We are here to provide hope, resources, and a community so no one feels alone in their grief. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Power of Love show sponsored by the Dee Dee Jackson Foundation, where we shine a light on loss and grief and how it impacts our lives. My name is TJ Jackson. And with me is my big brother, Taj Jackson. What's going on, TJ? <laughs> How are you, buddy? Good. Uh, today is December 9th, and of course, we are live on the Power of Love show. So if you are watching us on Facebook or YouTube, thank you for joining us. You may also be listening to us on our podcast, which is streamed on all major podcast platforms. Uh, if you're enjoying that podcast, make sure you subscribe because we have a lot of great shows planned up for not only to close the year, but in 2021 already. Um, so make sure you subscribe and make sure you like because by liking and leaving a comment or leaving a review, it helps others find our show who may be needing it. As you guys know, uh, we are sponsored by the Dee Dee Jackson Foundation, which is a 501c3 um, organization. And we are doing these shows simply to try to make life easier for you. So we bring in guests, and if we don't have guests, we talk about important topics that we feel are going to help you and help you improve life and help you get through any difficult moments you may be going through. Um, saying that, Taj, we do have a disclaimer to do, and I know you are not going to do it, so I will do it. Uh, we are not licensed therapists. We are just ordinary people who have experienced loss in our life. We've been infected by it, impacted by it, and we've learned from it. If you need professional help, we urge you to seek it and to find it. Do not just rely on us. Um, I'm trying to think, Taj. I feel like I'm on a roll, but I feel like I'm missing something. And this is where you're supposed to come in and let your younger brother know if he is. Am I missing anything? I don't think so. Okay. Got, All right. Yeah. Yeah. You got to turn that off. You're, you're so unprofessional. And who's hey, typing? Is that you? I just, I just <laughs> updated my computer. So. I'm okay. usually the one I'm always ahead is everyone else, but mm. I've mm. been. Well, anyways, Taj, um, you know, let's just get right into it. No need to talk about our weeks. Nothing much is going on. As you guys know, I'm in Nashville. Um, I, I'm leaving in a couple days back to L.A., but this is another a second show that I'm doing at a at a, the state. Taj, I'm sure nothing much has changed in your life unless you tell me right now. Nothing important, right? <laughs> no, we can, we can think, move on. Okay, just always something important, but nothing that needs to be show, shared. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, anyways, <laughs> I, 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 I'm not so sure about that. But anyways, let's let's get right to it, Taj. Today we are welcome welcoming back a special special guest. He is the CEO of Oncosite. I hope I'm saying that. He is Mr. Ronnie Andrews. Uh, Ronnie has close to 30 years of experience in the global clinical and molecular diagnostics industry, and it joins us for a very, very informative episode of COVID-19 back in September. Very informative. So if you haven't seen that, um, it's still probably worth watching. Um, but today, Ronnie is joining us to share a helpful and accurate and informative update as we continue to navigate the news surrounding COVID and the impending vaccines. We've all heard about these vaccines. Um, there's many different companies um, pharmaceuticals that are producing them, 
So we're going to learn about that and 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 get a better understanding of what this all means for all of us. Um, with that said, I'd like for everyone to please welcome back to the Power of Love show, the one and only Mr. Ronnie Andrews. Hey, Ronnie, guys. how are you guys? How are you, my friend? You know, we're all we're all hanging in there, right? I think it. Uh, we were hoping we wouldn't see the the winter surge, and yet we kind of all anticipated it in my world. And here we are in the middle of it. But um, I, I love this show last. I had so much fun and I appreciate you guys bring me on. And, and I, I, I turned all my old friends onto it. And they're like, Hey, that's a hip. Oh, cool. Not be that hip. And I said, don't matter. They'll welcome everybody, man. So uh, that's so right. Thanks for having me back. So, well, Ronnie, uh, you were so informative and so helpful to our community last time. So, in advance, I want to just thank you, and I'm going to thank you again, hopefully at the end, if I can remember. I don't have the best memory, yeah. but we, my brother and, and our foundation, we really enjoyed that episode, and you gave us so much important information in a time where there's so much different things that we're hearing, um, yeah. and I loved it because you come from a different angle. You come from a, 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 a level of expertise and knowledge and understanding that a lot of us don't have, so thank you so much for, for being here. Well, no, thank you for having me again. And, and I'm, you know, I, I am excited to share some data. I know that we're all, the world's in a little bit of, a little bit, how about a lot of fear right now? There's a lot going on around the world in the world of COVID. And, and um, I've got, you know, we've got some difficult news to share, but we've got great news to share as well. And I think, you know, the vaccines being approved as we speak, uh, we'll have, actually, I know that the UK got their first doses and we've had people getting vaccinated for the last 24 hours in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. and, it, and it looks like the US will be signing off an emergency use authorization um, either today or tomorrow. It may have already happened. I haven't seen the feed yet, but um, I know that there's a lot of good data out there now. We've seen the safety data. So I'm excited to talk about that today and give some folks some hopefully some confidence in, in how these vaccines were produced a little bit of not too science not too much science today but i do want to give everybody a little bit of a background on uh on how we got vaccines this fast to market when before it yeah. took years and hopefully with all that good information they can make a good informed decision and so um yeah so thanks for having me and as you know we put a few slides together not that we would bore everybody with a bunch of slides but i wanted to tell a little bit of a story of what's going on and then talk a little about some of the facts and data that you may not hear on the news every day. Yeah, well, I, I love that. And like you said, and I said earlier, you know, you were just here September with some amazing slides. So if it's okay with you, yeah. we'll start with those slides and we'll go through them and you could just explain what they are. Yeah. Um, and then for everyone- Dude, I think your headphones are clicking. Are they on Bluetooth? Yes, they're clicking. There's a clicking sound that's going in, in and out of the audio. Okay, let me know if this changes. Okay, I'm gonna try to. I'm gonna hope. Is it still doing it? I don't know. I'll I'll stop you if it does. But okay. Um, well, Ronnie, this is what we'll do. Like last time, you had some great uh, slides. We'll go through the slides, and I'll let you just explain what the slides are, what they mean, and then um, and then um, for everyone who's watching, if you have a question, we're gonna close the show with you with your questions. So if you have a question, I already see some great questions. I'm going to save them to the end because maybe Ronnie will answer them. And if not, we will uh, we will answer them. I'll ask you and then you'll answer them um, at the end. Sounds great. Cool? Yeah. All right, here we go. So yeah, you might Ronnie, think it's still doing it. It's like every I time got you. you. 
All right, so I'm gonna mute myself and I'm gonna put that first slide on and then I'll, I'll be back, I'll be ready. All right. All right, well, let me just uh, first tell a little bit about uh, where we're gonna talk about today. You, you know, we all knew in, in the world that I live in, uh, as for everybody's, you know, just a reminder, I spent 17 years in infectious disease before I had that horrible event in my life where someone very close to me died of cancer and I decided to take what I knew about, you know, molecular diagnostics and genetics and move it into the cancer world, but obviously still follow the infectious disease world closely since most of my friends and from my younger years are still there. And I think we all knew that when we didn't get through the first cycle of SARS-CoV-1 infections in, in the spring and summer, that we would see a winter surge. And certainly the science community has been predicting it. And you can see by the slide that, yep, it's here. I think the encouraging thing about this slide is some of the countries have already gone through it and they're starting to, to turn downward. Uh, and so that is, as you can see with Germany, et cetera, I think, I think that's a good uh, sign that, that we too will get to a peak and, and begin to turn the corner again. Um, if you go to the next slide, um, what, what I wanted to share, if you remember in the September, I mentioned that not every case is that you hear about on the news is actually a hospitalization. In the world of infectious disease, you have positive infections and then you have hospital cases. And unfortunately, through all the you know hysteria and all the fear we've had about this virus, we've we've not used the same nomenclature that we've used traditionally in our industry. And so what you really, if you remember in September, I said, hey, one of the things you got to look for is not only the number of infections, because that's going to grow as we have more and more young people getting it because they're not gonna get sick. And then we need to follow how many of those infections actually end up in a hospitalization and how many of those infections end up in, in ICU. And you'll see that the spike from the recent uh, number of infections is really the ICU utilization is starting to turn down in, in most countries, including the United States. Now, barely ticking down in the US, but that's a good sign. And, and why is that a good sign? Because we're actually starting to manage the disease better. And it looks like this latest surge has really impacted a lot of younger population. And we've done a better job this time around of getting the older population, which is unfortunately, you know, the, the, the ones that suffer the most from this disease, we've actually moved them uh, out and, 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 and isolated them better this time around. If you look at the next slide, um, you'll see that the US, if you look at us at the bottom, uh, it's a one time you want to be at the bottom of the slide. This is actually the ICU bed per million people. And you can see that, that it, uh, even though we do have ICU capacities in, in the Midwest and certainly the Northeast at times, and in, in Los Angeles, we've seen some of that as well here. But the reality is as a whole, the United States has, has remained relatively flat in terms of its utilization of ICU beds. And, and why is that? Well. We triage it better now. Our docs know when they see a case come in, we've got rapid tests so we can differentiate quickly in the emergency room from an acute infection of some other type or is this a COVID patient so you can move them and isolate them. We now have seen enough cases. We have standard protocols for managing how we bring these patients through and actually admit or send a lot of patients home that think they need to be admitted, but they don't have any of the other comorbidities. And the real opportunity though, is we now have some standard knowledge about all these new therapies that we talked about in September that were starting, you know, have been used. We now know that they do work 
And if you get patients on things like the antiviral remdesivir, if you get them on a blood thinner earlier in the cycle, as you admit them, instead of waiting until they get very sick, we see much, much better outcomes and less utilization of ventilators, which we now know is the worst thing that you can do for one of these patients is to do that. And so, you know, so that data, I think, is encouraging that even though we're seeing uh, higher spikes, we are we are actually being able to deal with it better. I, I put some uh, if you go to the next slide, um, I, I know I'm here in SoCal. I, it sounds like, TJ, you're in Nashville, Tennessee, which is a. Uh, where I should be with my accent, but I'm actually, (laughs) but um, you can see that Southern California is going through a a really incredible spike right now. And, and the non-ICU bed usage has really gone off, off the charts. The ICU beds, if you look in, in LA County, we still have close to 500 beds available. And down here in Orange County, where I live 113. So for us, that's about a 40% capacity left. So you know, the good news is if there's good news in all this surge, it's that our physicians, our frontline workers have done an amazing heroic job of, of not only helping patients, but through the process, learning on the fly, which is so important in a disease where you don't have a history is that you learn, you communicate, you get teams together, you talk about what worked, what didn't, so that you really, it's a, it's a learning process every day. And so, the, the idea that the ICUs are not being utilized as much is really a, a powerful thing for us as we think about the winter months coming ahead, because we need those ICU beds for other things like heart attacks, mm-hmm. uh, cancer patients, stroke, and obviously the flu will be heading our way uh, soon. And so um, so if we want to shift gears real quick and then I, I you know open it up for, 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 for questions. You know, one of the things we said back in September is that the unfortunately, COVID is really affecting, you know, my age and older. And I like to think I'm young still. And you guys make me feel young. So thank <laughs> you for that. But the reality is, you know, I'm in that 60 plus age group. And if you've got comorbidities in that age group, you start to see that that we are really the ones that get the sickest. And, and certainly uh, the death rate is much, much higher in the older population. And so this next slide really tells us an interesting story. Um, and, it, and this story hasn't changed in September, but it's gotten a little more uh, clearer. And that is, if you look on the left, 86% of the new infections in the U.S. right now are under 64. So as people have gone back to get their life back together, more of the infections are in a healthier population. So that's the good news. The, the bad news is that we're still seeing a lot of people that are over 65 uh, not do well, especially over 65 with a couple comorbidities. And so again, the important thing with the upcoming holidays is that we've got an opportunity now to to enjoy one of the greatest seasons of our of, of the year. Certainly, as a as a proponent of your show and just how love can change people's hearts and and change their worlds. And this is a season where you want to be with family, you want to be with friends, and so and yet, as you can see from the spike and these numbers, we still need to be extremely cautious. And do the right thing, you know, wear the mask, social distance. If you've got a fever, anything, don't go anywhere. And especially don't get around your elderly, you know, your parents or your grandparents or anyone that you think might be frail or have an underlying condition. And if we can do that, you know, we'll get through the holidays. We, we might see another surge in infections. But as long as those infections are among the, the youthful, younger, healthier 
immune systems, we won't see a lot of downstream impact in terms of hospitalizations, ICUs, and, and deaths for sure. And so, so the good news though, is we have vaccines now, right? And we talked in September, we kind of were like, will we have them or not? And I kind of, I had a bet with a bunch of friends and they owe me good wine now, so that's good. In <laughs> <laughs> the holiday time. But um, I'm gonna, I wanted to share with everybody because I get a lot of questions when I speak and certainly a lot of questions from friends about, is it safe to take the vaccine? And, yeah. and what I wanted to do was try to take the, 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 the media and the politics out of it and just talk about why these are safe vaccines. And mm -hmm. so I've got a slide here. Uh, the next slide is, is talking about, we're in full ramp up mode. You know, the last time to give people on this call hope, the last time I saw the public science community, the, the private industry like pharma and the diagnostics world that I live come together with as much energy and, and as much orchestrated focus on solving a patient dilemma versus making money for themselves was in the early days of HTL1, HTLV 1, 2, and 3 and HIV. And I spent many years in that world. And, and, and I think it was such a great experience as a, as a diagnostician like me and also the pharma world because we did something meaningful and we worked with the government on an endpoint that allowed us to rapidly get things to market like new antiretroviral drugs. So now we sit here you know, many years later and we've had that second sort of cycle of the public you know, science world like the NIH, et cetera, coming alongside us in, in the, in the, pub, in the uh, private, I mean public world and then alongside pharma and we've actually created an environment where we have significant number of initiatives now in the pharma world trying to create cures for this. And the good news is because this is a virus that's not too dissimilar from some we've seen before in terms of the impact on the patient, we actually now have 577 unique therapies that are in trials today. And these aren't vaccines, these are therapies that are used for other types of viral infections and other type of respiratory distress that are now coming in and they're trying them out to see if they can be used. And that means that pharma and the, and the public sector are putting about, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into trials to get a rapid turnaround on something that might help these patients, A, help, patient, help people to get it, not have to go to the hospital. And then the ones that go to the hospital, how do we keep them out of ICU? And that really has become a really powerful thing. We have 51 vaccines, unique vaccines in trials. And as, as we talk, two are approved, obviously in the world, they're not here in the US, but the FDA is looking uh, tomorrow. They have a meeting with Pfizer and I suspect we'll see the final approval tomorrow. And so what are we getting, right? That's, that's the big question. <laughs> We're getting this vaccine that's really happened over the last six months. And, and so, if you go to the next slide, I wanted to pause for the audience and just walk through why, why it's important to, to believe in the ability that we've created from a science perspective over the last 10 to 15 years. I put these statistics on the side because I was amazed when I looked them up, but it took 197 years to isolate the measles, 158 years to isolate polio, 11 years to isolate the mumps. It took us two weeks to fully sequence the novel coronavirus back in January. And so why does that matter in terms of vaccines, Ronnie? Well, because if you look at the slide, you'll see on the right-hand side, the traditional vaccines, we basically take a piece of virus and we inactivate it. We put it into 
bovine albumin and, and other animal albumin matrix. And then they have to purify that because we're going to inject, uh, you know, cow albumin into your arm and put a virus in that to go in you. So you create an immune response. We better know that that's not going to cause a problem. And it's that iteration and purification of all those things that, that make this a slow process versus on the left-hand side, what we're able to do now with that sequencing capability is we create the DNA of the, of the, of the coronavirus. And then, then the important thing, DNA is like the big master blueprint. And I always say, if, you know, if the master blueprint was developed in downtown Los Angeles at a architectural firm, but the manufacturing center for these vaccine or for these, uh, for these viruses is out in Newport beach. You put that into a courier and that courier has to carry the blueprint to the manufacturer. So well, that courier is messenger RNA. And so what the virus does is it intercepts your courier and puts its own blueprint in there and steals the original healthy blueprint and puts the virus replication blueprint. And now that goes out to the cell and part of the cell that creates uh, the, the protein and that protein becomes a new virus. And that's why it overwhelms the body rapidly with viral, what we call viral titers. The beauty of mRNA vaccines is we now take that same process that your cell goes through to take the virus from uh, the RNA from the virus and create new virus. We give it artificial, what we call proteins that have been synthesized by these sequencing capabilities. And we're injecting using saline or a neutral solution, not some other animal's protein matrix. We're using a, a simple, clean solution in your arm. And these mRNA viruses actually go into your cell and make your cell the manufacturer of the antibodies that ultimately mm. produce the immunity. And so mm. the reason these are so safe is because we have now been able to study them using artificial intelligence engines so that we know based on the sequences that we pick for the virus. So if you've got the DNA, a long strand of DNA, we're picking small pieces. Let me get my hands up. Small pieces of RNA. And those small pieces of an RNA, they don't code for the whole virus. So it's not at risk of putting the patient, an inactive virus in the patient and they get a response. We're putting small pieces of the code to build these glycoproteins. When they go into the cell, they're not building a real weakened virus. They're building pieces of that. But that is enough for your body to respond to it. And those have been tested against a huge artificial engine, you know, artificial um, intelligence engine where we can identify and predict the potential side effects of each one of those proteins based on our knowledge of biology. And so mm -hmm. these, I would tell you based on the safety data I've seen so far, and I was, I was for this call, I called a few people and they sent me the actual data, uh, some of the submission data. And, you know, I'm going to tell you that the Pfizer vaccine and and the Moderna vaccine are both very safe on the first dose. And so from a first dose on, it is going to take two doses. And so but but I feel really good now. I get asked all the time, are you going to take it? And my answer is pretty simple. If there's enough to go around and everybody that desperately needs it gets it, then I would take one. But I'm not going to be first in line for something that I know someone that's I'm, I'm, you know, I might be 60, but I'm trying to act like I'm 30 and hang out. With you. <laughs> You're doing a good job. Well, my yeah. system, you know, I stay in good shape. I eat well and I work out. So for me, I don't feel like I'm at risk to be hospitalized. A chance in Orange County right now for a healthy 64 year old or under 
of going to the hospital is 0.14%. So 99.96% chance, even if I got the virus, I would not get sick enough to go to the hospital. That's, wow. that's the current CDC data for Orange County. And it's different for all the counties, but even LA County is not much different for that if you're healthy with no underlying condition. So out of the gate, I think you've seen the CDC's recommendation. We want to give it to frontline healthcare workers. We want to give it to those elderly patients that are in uh, assisted living homes because they're the ones that are, have paid the price for our lack of having a vaccine. And if we get them vaccinated over the Christmas holidays in January and February, those of us that have healthy immune systems, we might have to suffer a little bit. Let's be honest. We might get sick. We might have a few days out of work. We might, some of us, you know, the one in 100,000 that, that are part of that small statistic might end up having to go to the emergency room. But the reality is the people that need it the most will, will save their lives with the vaccine versus it might help me not have, be inconvenienced by be, you know having a fever for a few days. And so I'm really excited about the vaccines. I, I think this is the new era. We've been using these mRNA vaccines in melanoma and other cancers. You guys know I'm a, in mostly cancer now. And, and we've been using these for, for years. You can say, yeah, but those are cancer patients. They might die anyway. That's true. But we've not seen side effects from the actual use of the, of the, of the vaccine itself. The side effects have been other things that you know, happen in a cancer world where you have multiple illnesses at once in a cancer patient. So, but anyway, so I feel really good about where we are. And, and as I said, I think, uh, I think we'll be safe. And, and again, the bottom line in this last slide is really, you know, it, the mRNA vaccine uses your cell as a manufacturing center versus manufacturing in a large uh, pharma plant and putting it into a, 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 you know, some type of matrix that's, you know, could cause you ch challenges. So they have to purify it over and over. Here, we just put it in and the body uses, or the, your cells use this uh, RNA sequence to go and code for proteins that create your immune system to get excited and come kill the virus. And so it's easier to manufacture. Um, you know, we've, we've been able to do this in rapid time, partly because of the investment, partly because of the courage of many thousands of people who went and got the vaccine so that we could, they could, you know, on the front lines, they could give the data necessary to get us where we are this fast. So, you know, look, I, I, there's a lot of, and you, you know, I know your shows about helping people that have been through challenges and in pain and, and helping them overcome that. And, you know, we've, I've lost a friend. We probably all lost friends to COVID and it's, it's been really, really sad and, 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 we can't replace those folks. But the reality is there is good news on the horizon. It is a nasty virus. It, we are going to get over it. And we as a community have come together in a way I've never seen. And I just think we need to keep showing kindness and grace. We don't all agree on some of the stuff around it, but we can all agree on is we want no one else to die from this disease. And we as a country and we as a community need to come together and help those that have the highest chance of severe illness get what they need to not get sick and die. Mm. Well, that was very, very, very informative. And um, so thank you for that. Because I am one who's had so many questions about vaccines. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I, I it's not that I'm skeptical of vaccines, but I would try to always avoid them. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm from that mentality that I don't want to put anything in my body, a foreign object or a foreign anything into my body. Um, 
However, saying that, you know, I, I also have to be um, aware that there are polio and, and you know, and yeah. measles and mumps. And, and if we have an opportunity to get rid of it in our world, then that's something we should do. Yeah. My biggest concern, which I think is, which is cool because I didn't know this and you taught me this. And please correct me if I'm wrong. Is it right to assume that if I were to get a vaccine, it's not necessarily that something too foreign is going in my body. It's just something it's triggering my body to fight what it would right. need to fight if it got COVID. That's exactly right. Traditional vaccines use the actual virus. They weaken it, they purify it, and then put it back in your body. This is taking a small piece of the genetic code of that virus, which can't code for the whole virus, putting that in in a neutral solution that's not going to cause a reaction and using your your cells that typically create good proteins to create pieces of the viral protein. Then your immune system sees it and it gets it excited to come in and get rid of it very rapidly. So you build what we call, uh, you know, immune globulins, immunoglobulins, depending on which side of the Mississippi you're on. And uh, so um, but these are these are your you know body's natural you know disease fighters and you want to get them fired up and you know, I think I can use this word. You want to get pissed off at that virus. That virus isn't supposed to be here. And your immune system needs to be really fired up and aware. So as soon as it sees it, it flips on. And that's job. It's job day one is to get rid of the virus. And that's the beauty of, I think, the mRNA world we're entering into. So I have a question. Yeah. In terms of like, because right now you, there's like two main companies competing in terms of, is there much of a difference in terms of the vaccine? between these co companies of what they're doing? The safety data uh, is not very different at all. One, you know, the Moderna vaccine, they're both gonna require, it looks like two doses, but what the data I saw, the Moderna vaccine actually gets you a higher titer level with the first dose versus the Pfizer. Pfizer has to be stored at 70 degrees below zero. So more than likely <clears throat> to, get the, to get that vaccine, you're gonna have to go to a doctor's office I would even say you're probably going to have to go to a hospital clinic out of the gate to get it because they have to have the appropriate um, nitrogen, liquid nitrogen freezers to be able to keep it that cold. And then they thaw it out. Obviously, they thaw it out before they put it in you. But that'd be a, that'd be a chilly moment. In yeah, your I was gonna say, that'd yeah. be interesting. Yeah. So I, I, that was similar to my question, Taj, but I'm going to ask it a little better. Uh, <laughs> This is. <laughs> I love you, Todd. We'll see. I love you, man. <laughs> what can I say? You got to take those jabs when you can get them. Um, so I know of the many different companies, pharmaceutical companies that are making a vaccine. My question is, can you kind of paint how that works? Are they all just like secretly coming up with their strategy? so that the winner can kind of be the first one there and, and maybe profit the most? Or is there a, a, a community kind of approach where everyone's um, feeding off of each other? Because this is what I, and I don't say, I, I, it just, this is just something that trips me up early. If I'm thinking of 151 or 50, however many companies that are coming up with, farm, uh, with vaccines, is it really that many different ways to get to this one spot of, of keeping us uh, you know, keeping us safe from COVID. And if so, which is the best route to go? That's such a great question. And I'm going to give him a straight up answer because I think that's why you have me on. 
Look, I can't deny that there is a unfortunate profit mentality among vaccines makers. Let's be vaccine makers. Let's just be blunt. Um, I do. I do. I have watched and, and not to pick a favorite, but I have watched Pfizer do something unique. They did in the early days. They took no money from the government. They wanted to use their own technology, their own scientists, and they wanted to do it in on their own because they didn't want to feel like they were being pressured by the government to do something that they might not feel was right, efficacious, right? And then all of a sudden they got into the process, they got into the trial and it was okay to get the government start doing pre-orders and that so they could get some capital to, to continue the process. Now let's be honest, Pfizer doesn't hurt for cash. So I'm sure, you know, they were in good shape, but, but you're asking a very good question. And the reality of it is, I wish I could say it was a very altruistic mentality in the industry. It is not. However, I do believe there's goodness in, in the teams that build these vaccines. They, they, they study, they practice, they, you know, and a, and a pandemic gives within a company an absolute catalyst for people to come together and drop all the internal bureaucracy and politics and go get something done. And, you know, having been run big corporations and now a, a small company, which I prefer, you know, Every day we woke up, wake up, survival of a patient is all we get to think about because that's all we care about here at my company. But in a big company, you got all the politics of, well, I'm going to get a promotion. Well, if I beat this person with this data or that data. But I think what I've seen here is there's been a nice, um, a, at least a nice energy around getting this done in a rapid amount of time. Now, back to the other question, there are probably 30 ways to skin this virus back and get a vaccine out there mRNA is, is only one. There are about, I think, 40 or 50 of the companies that are working on um, vaccines that aren't in trials yet that are the traditional old way to do it. And then there's some that are using different types of, of, of RNA, you know, repl replication, et cetera. And, and who, who knows how many will be successful? Many of them will. And, and the good news is, Right now, there's not probably not one manufacturer in the world that can manufacture enough for everybody to get a vaccine if we wanted to do that. And and the question that a lot of these companies have to ask themselves is, will the, it will one dose be enough to get T cell immunity? And will we actually ever need another vaccine or not? And that data, we just don't know. Yet. Are we going to live in a world where there's different coronavirus vaccines to take and you can pick one for whatever reason? Or is one going to just emerge as the best one to do and, and dominate everything? No, right now the flu virus is somewhat ubiquitous. There's a sequence of the flu virus every year. You have multiple manufacturers that manufacture it. And that's how they fill the supply chain. And I suspect you'll see the same thing ultimately with COVID-2. I do think that it's going to be interesting to see if, if, and you know, where these guys want to go is ultimately cure the common cold. The coronavirus is a common cold virus. That's what causes the common cold. This happens to be a, unfortunately, one that's on, you know, on steroids a little bit and really fired up and doing some much more damage than we anticipated. But I think as you start to see some of these vaccines come out, if you could give in the flu vaccine a corona vaccine during the flu season you could eliminate a lot of the, you know, the common cold type things. And I've read articles where people are trying to see if they can go back and do that. We've been trying to find a cure for the common cold since I was a kid mm. and we haven't. Right. And so, um, but I, I do think that you will see multiple vaccines in the market. The question will be, will you even know it, you know, years from now, if you're going and this doesn't turn out to give us T cell immunity 
am I going to go get another vaccine? And you will, you know, who actually manufactures it or not. So, that, yeah. And that was, I guess, another question I had, is this going to be a one-time vaccination in your opinion, or is this going to be an annual or every other year or every it's 10 years? To tell, you know, too early to tell, TJ, be honest. There are some articles from uh, the Hoya Institute of Infectious Disease down south of me, not far. Um, and there's a few, you know, you know, very accomplished infectious disease experts there that believe that there's about 60 to 70 percent of us that already have T-cell immunity against this virus. And, you know, I've had mine done, my T-cells done, and I actually have T-cell, active T-cells against the virus. Um, how long will I have those and, and how long have I had them? It's, I don't know. You have to do these longitudinal studies. Those are being done now, though. We'll watch those. The data so far is from Europe, we've seen people that have had IgG antibodies from the very beginning, and those studies that are now published. In the U.S., we have seen some studies, small numbers of people that have gotten and had IgG, but they don't see IgG anymore. And so the question we ask is, does that mean they don't have an IgG immunity, or does that mean that we don't have a, a rapid test for T cells, so we have no way, unless you're going to, like I did, draw blood and do a sequence of a, your, your immune system, you know, we don't have that active. There's a couple of companies coming out with one, and when they get there, it'd be great because then you'll see do I have active T cells? If you do, you don't need a vaccine. Why yeah. do you get a vaccine if you've got active T cells? So we're probably a year away from having something routine that will, with a blood draw, test your T cells. And then you will know then is IgG going down because T cells are coming up, or is IgG going down and you need another shot? And we just don't know that today. Do, do you think there, and, and if you just explain this, I apologize. Um, some of this is way beyond my mental capacity. But do you think there will be a time where in the near future where we'll be able to do blood work without a vaccine to see if we even need the vaccine in the first place? Is that, yeah. I know you explained something, but was that basically yeah, if we took the first dosage or? Right. I think ultimately there will be a blood test. There already is a blood, we call it serology, blood serology test. So we'll take a blood test and we'll see, do I have IgG antibodies and do I have active antibodies? Is that enough to, to keep me from getting the virus? And that data is evolving now. And if I, if I have T cells, when that test come out, if I have T cells, your T cells are the, you know, they're the sort of the granddaddy of all immunity for you as a, as a, as a human being. And so if your T cells are active against an antigen, in this case, the coronavirus, you're going to, you're not going to get sick from that traditionally in the world of immunology. Now we've learned in cancer and now we're learning with Corona. We just don't know, is this, does this evade and escape the immune system? So T cells might be there, but the virus has escaped it. In my world of oncology, there is unfortunately a biological process where the tumor cell itself hides from the immune system. It's that smart. So is this virus, is that where we're heading? And it's just too early to tell. My, my belief is that the virology world is not, it, you know, this virus, while it's been serious, is not as complicated as we deal with in oncology. And there's a lot more biology at play in a world of oncology than there is in virology. So I suspect that T cells will do the trick and we just got to know if you got them or not. Uh, we're going to go to some questions, even though I have more in my head. Uh, there's so many great questions here, so we'll get to some. Um, Patty wants to know, Ronnie, are there any known side effects of this vaccine? So in the safety data, if you look, there were there were people that got after the second shot. They did get flu-like symptoms for a couple of days. It wasn't severe, 
or they wouldn't have allowed the vaccine to get this far. But uh, they did get chills. Uh, there was some fever. There was some redness around the injection site. Most of that is a is a local, you know, dermatitis or something where the where the, the saline created a little bit of a response in the skin. But there there have not really been any major side effects to date, to my knowledge, based on what I've seen. We'll know tomorrow when all the data is released and and we can see it publicly uh, as they go to the FDA to get their final approval. Nice. Um, I, I do have another question for you regarding this um, vaccine. Um, where was it? Hold on, let me let me find it. I'm sorry, Ronnie. Don't no worry. Hey, okay. I, I like hanging out with you guys. <laughs> You're awesome. Um, you know what? One question I had is is the long term effects of and i mean like negative effects you know you mentioned flu-like symptoms maybe some um bruising and that kind of stuff am i wrong and please correct me you have way more knowledge in this than me can anything eventually happen from taking a vaccine maybe that you don't see in the first year or two or is that mentality just off because once the vaccinations in, your body recoups or recovers from it um or forms whatever it's going to form immediately and nothing changes yeah, I, I don't know the answer to be blind. Okay. I'd love to guess. My guess would be this that we know messenger RNA is creating glycoproteins only, and your body's responding to subunits of a virus, not the full virus. So I suspect there won't be any long term effects because it's it's just creating an antibody and a T cell ultimately that will protect you. Um, but it will take it'll take a few years for us to see that. On the other side though, if you look at the you know, if you look at sort of that cost, you know, equation of do I take it or not? If you get serious COVID, there are, you can see in the paper every day, there are long, long-term effects predicted mm. for those patients that have had severe, you know, respiratory distress over this. And so, you know, there's, there's myopathies of the heart, there's brain issues. And so, you know, taking an mRNA virus and be, building an immunity against it versus, the side effects of getting it. So if you have an underlying condition, I guess we go back to the same thing. If you've got an underlying condition, the vaccine is a, is a very good option, in my opinion, one man's opinion. Um, Leslie wants to know, will taking the flu shot help protect you from getting the coronavirus? That's a great, you know what? That's a great question. The answer is it will, but not this coronavirus. So if you look in the flu vaccine every year, there's influenza A, which is H1N1. And typically, if you look at the different types of viruses that they put into that it's a it's a comprehensive shot so it's got all the different strains of virus they think might cause a problem for the year and the world health organization and the cdc they look at these things and said i this is what we think we're going to see this year and that goes to the vaccine manufacturers and then they build the vaccines um in there are always some corona type viruses but not covid 2 Co coronavirus 2 is a unique uh, is very unique virus in terms of it's eliciting the immune response, and you'll need a you'll need a shot for COVID two and the and the flu shot at least this year. Ultimately, we would want to see the part of the natural flu vaccine. Mm. Kim wants to know, Ronnie. I heard that if you have O blood, you are less to get COVID. Is that true? And I want to ask, if so, then why? Yeah. So here's here's the theory behind that. On your, it's just a little geeky, so y'all hang with me, right? <laughs> On your red blood cell, you have different uh, antigens. 
And that makes up whether you're O or A or B or AB or A or O negative, et cetera. And so because you have a different makeup of the cellular surface of your red cells, theoretically, the idea is that the spike protein that the coronavirus uses finds more receptors in certain blood types and therefore can create a much faster uh, you know, viral content within that body and therefore get people sicker faster and, they, and potentially then get a more acute case. I've read some of that data. I do think there's probably science to that. Having grown up in the, that world of you know, human leukocyte antigens and how that works, but I would say that because you have O, you, it's not protecting you from getting it. If you're O, what I've seen is those people don't get as sick typically. Mm, okay. Uh, Kinga had a great question, if I can find it. Here it is. Uh, she says, Pfizer reserves the right not to be responsible for any side effects of the vaccine. Why isn't that weird? I would assume real quick that that's kind of normal for pharmaceuticals because they don't want to be yes. subject to litigation regardless. Uh, but if I jump the gun and that is not correct, please correct me. No, they have disclaimers like that in all their package inserts for the flu. However, you know, I do think that in this case, it, it does raise for all of us that are kind of in the lay community, we kind of our eyebrows go, well, is there something there to that? And that's why we're all waiting for the full safety data tomorrow. I mean, the full safety data comes out and they've got thousands of patients and they didn't have any serious side effects. Then, then, then it's just a disclaimer. If there were some side effects that we see tomorrow, you know, then, then now it becomes weird that that they're making such they would make a big deal about that. But you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's in a lot of these package inserts of all vaccines and really a lot of drugs as well. A lot, especially in the cancer world, you know, we're giving sick patients, you know, chemotherapy and, and you know, they have to sign a waiver if they understand the risk of that, right? And so. Uh, in the presentation, you mentioned I, I, I took a note, and my hand my handwriting so bad I can't even see the note. So, but you mentioned I think in the hundreds of therapies. Yeah, five hundred seventy-seven. So right what now, is, what yeah. is that? Is that something that you get in the store versus a vaccination, like a yeah. medication? Yeah, explain so, therapies. Yeah, there's vaccines that you get. Vaccines give you immunity, so you don't get it. Therapies are once you get it. How do you manage it, right? Got it. Right now, there's a nice protocol that seems to be working well. When you present in the ER, if you're a candidate for admission, they immediately put you on remdesivir, and they, which is an antiviral. So what does that mean? It means you know how this virus replicates? It stops that replication process. It actually it goes in the cell and stops the replication process of the virus. Um, and so these types of therapies have been around forever. I mean, back in the HIV days, we had a lot of uh, anti-retroviral research done. Before that, you had the world of herpes and things like that, where you have, that's a virus that sits in the end of your nerve, uh, in the, your nerve endings. And so these antiretrovirals, you take them prophylactically when you start to feel a flare up of any of those types of viruses, and it shuts down the virus's ability to replicate. Therefore, you don't get in herpes, you don't get the blisters and, you know, and, and HIV, it, it minimizes you from getting enough viral copies to create AIDS, right? And so if you think about that, these therapies are playing off that ability to shut down the, the virus's ability to replicate itself within the patient. And so those are the types of therapies we're looking at. There's a whole series of therapies. Um, again, 
in the late stage, right before death, or these we've seen this in COVID patients, they get what they call cytokine storm. So what does that mean? Your immune system in these patients that are immune compromised and have comorbidities, they don't kick in, they don't kick in, they don't kick in, the patient gets sicker, 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 they go on ventilators, that now they've got multiple organ failure, and all of a sudden the immune system wakes up and goes, whoa, wait a minute, I gotta do my job here, and it overwhelms the body with this immune response, and that sends people into what we call cytokine storm, which basically kills the patient to be a multiple organ. Mm. Your body, the immune system begins to chew up your body's organs very rapidly. And so there are drugs, therapies now that shut down uh, the body's immune system. <laughs> you think, well, why would we want to do that? Well, we wouldn't unless it's the late stage and we don't want them to die of cytokine storm. Now we give them those drugs to let the antibiotics and other things that are trying to take over work. So we give the patient time and the immune system gets push back. So we've learned so much in six months about this virus that treating it early is the way to go. If you've got patients that get to the end, there are now therapies that help them recover. And, uh, you know, I have a good friend who has been in ICU. We touch and go, touch and go. And thank, you know, thank God they stayed on it. Cytokine, anti-cytokine drugs worked and it's given her a chance to get her body strength back. And now she's going to probably get out of ICU and recover. In April, she would have because we didn't understand oh. that part of it. So I understand that the issue with shutting down the body, I, uh, you know, I understand why it was needed, but I understand the issue with it and the, the negative side of it. And I also know uh, several people who have been struggling with it. And there's a fear that their body will never be the same. It will never fully recover. Um, is that a, a valid fear? And I don't want to put you on the spot for that. And I'm sure it, it depends on the situation, but... I know the the body is a powerful thing, and and I assume in time it can recover. Am I wrong in assuming that? No, not at all. I mean, look, I, you know, I, I'm a guy who's been around the block so many times. I've seen so many people with cancer who we thought were not going to make it, who just their sheer will to live, their their the, the spirit of people that came around them, whether it be you know, prayer community or whether it be other types of spiritual communities and, and the biochemistry, the body changed. And next thing you know, this person you thought was not going to make it lived. And I had, you know, I have a living example of that my grandmother had her first breast cancer when I was 11. They, she, they said she had six months to live. She had cancer until she, so she was what, 52. She had cancer and died at 86, ultimately wow. on and off with cancer, being told she was going to die four or five times. And every time I would, you know, go to see her, she'd say, they don't know what they're talking about. I can't die. Your granddaddy can't live without me. She was right. I mean, my granddaddy, you yeah. know, died in November and she, six months later, she finally gave up and, but she had cancer the whole time. And so I think the message that that story really is just to say that I do believe that the body is a unique creation that has the ability to fix itself. And we shouldn't underestimate the power of the human body and, and the chance for it to recreate itself. However, I do think there are a lot of patients would have comorbidities that are going to have to have help with that. And that's where some of these therapies that we're talking about that will help them get better. And I suspect there are, you know, look, polio, measles. There are people today living that had the effects of polio back in their ch childhood that still have that. It didn't get well. It didn't get fixed, but they're living. They live the life. They learn to accommodate it. And, and so I hope we don't see that with this. I hope that, you know, I'm wrong, but I, you know, there'll probably be certain types of people, especially people that get what we call acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, 
those people's lungs get scarred up and they're going to have a hard time breathing. They're probably not going to, if they were runners before, they're probably going to be a walker now and those kind of mm. things. So, you know, unfortunately, we just don't know yet. Okay, so we've been going for 50 minutes, so we'll wrap it up. But there's two more questions, Ronnie. One I have to ask and one that I'm looking at. And for everyone who's already asked the question, I can't even access all of them because there's that many comments and questions. So, again, thank you, Ronnie, for, you know, you're, you're providing a lot of knowledge for people who just don't know because we're hearing so many mixed signals. Um, yeah. The question I wanted to ask, my mind is just going everywhere, but is – if you have a pre-existing condition, whether it's high blood pressure, whether it's um, MS, Alzheimer's, whatever it is, is there any way to know whether we should or should not, or if the vaccination can harm us? Um, I just wanted, because I assume when, when people are talking about the vaccination, there's always an assumption for the regular person. But is there a group of people that should maybe not do this vaccination because it actually could harm them? You know, that's a really good question. I, um, off the top of my head, I can't imagine a subgroup, subpopulation of people that have comorbidities that have a risk of dying from this disease, that the vaccine is not a better cho choice than hoping you don't get it, to be honest. Okay. Okay. And, and I, again, I don't, I don't know yeah. if sure we have time will tell with that. So Yeah. Okay. And then this is a perfect way to close because um, you know, I know there's going to be a strong push for our our society, our world to be vaccinated to hopefully, you know, so we, we can hopefully get our life back. Um, this is a question from Denise. What percentage of people would you like to take the vaccine? And I'm not going to put you on the spot to give a number, but is there a certain, uh, you know, is there a certain amount of the population that we need to strive to, to at least show, um, you know, to take this vaccination so we can get back to normality? Yeah, here's here's my answer, and this is just an honest answer, and you might not get the same answer from another science-oriented guy. Here's where I'm, my head's at. I think that the vulnerable, uh, we need to get a high percentage of the vulnerable for their own safety to take it. We need to have a high percentage of the uh, frontline workers take it because they're they're at risk every day. They put their life on the lines, and they should they should get this early. If the data from the La Jolla Institute of Infectious Disease, and happy to send some links if you guys want to read more about this, if, if you read this and if they're right that 60 to 70 percent of people already have T-cell immunity against this, then you really only need about 20 more percent of the people to get vaccinated, assuming the vaccine gives you a T-cell response. If it only gives you an IgG response, then you need 20 percent every year to keep doing it. But if that's true, you would create an environment where the, the virus wouldn't have many places to go to infect people. And, and so the other thing I would say is that as a, if I were a 30, you can, the numbers are pretty clear. If I was a 30 year old healthy person, um, you know, taking the vaccine is nice to have, but, but you're, if you get it, you're not, you know, chances, unless you have a comorbidity, I'm always, mm -hmm. you know, clarifying that if you've got any kind of underlying comorbidity, diabetes, if you're overweight, if you have breathing problems, you know, if you're a vapor, I think we talked about that last time, mm -hmm. vaping is horrible. It creates 10 times the active sites, the receptor sites on the cell and the lungs for the virus. And so if you, if you do those things or you have those morbidities, then that's a different story. But for a healthy immune system, um, you know, I think that if we can get the elderly and we can get the frontline workers, 
and then about 20 to 30 percent of the population assuming my friends at at La Jolla Institute for Infectious Disease are right, you'll reach a, you'll reach some level, it won't be a herd immunity probably, but you reach some level of population immunity where things will get back to normal. Love it. Um, Ronnie, there's so many people already thanking you for sharing everything. Um, you've cleared up so much for so many of us. Um, I forgot to mention before we started today, but I hope you remember from last time, we like to give our guests uh, 30 seconds to a minute to talk about whatever they want. So you're nodding as if you do remember. So uh, I'm happy you do, but go ahead, Ronnie, let us know anything that is on your mind and what you would want to share to our community. Yeah, look, this is a, to me, this is the greatest season of the year. I mentioned that earlier. It's a time where we get to be with family. We get to be with loved ones. And, and, and I also say in this time of year of all years that I'm 61 for all the years I've been on this earth, now more than ever, the world needs the message of love and grace and mercy that comes this time of year. It doesn't matter what your religion is. That is the message of this season. And I just encourage, and I love what you guys do and how you do with compassion and heart. And I just say, you know, it's been a divisive year. We as people don't have to be divided. We can, we can still accept and love each other for our differences and give each other grace. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, the holiday season is about mercy and grace. And I just encourage us all to keep that as the forefront spirit as we enter the next three weeks. There you have it, everyone. Uh, the one and only Mr. Ronnie Andrews. That's great. Yeah. Uh, Taj, do you have any, uh, any, I'm sorry, bro. I didn't really get to you on your questions or anything, but do you have any other thoughts you want to share? No, I'm just thankful for you coming down and, and talking about this to everyone. Yeah, happy. You know, listen. Anytime. I love. I love you guys. I love what y'all oh, do. We love you, Ryan. For what you're doing, and you know, I uh, I want to I want to help in any way I can. And you know, maybe maybe there's a new topic I can just come on and rap about one day. <laughs> yes, ho hopefully. But yes, uh, Ronnie. Anytime you want to join us, you are more than welcome. We love having you. You bring up so much insight to all of us. You know, a lot of what you understand so well, we don't know. And you, you have a great way of informing us and, and helping, helping us learn it. So on behalf of my brother and the entire foundation and our entire community, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all. Have a, have a blessed holiday season, everybody. Thanks. All right, everyone. So we are wrapping up. We will see you guys next Wednesday. Uh, 1 p.m. Remember, as, as Mr. Ronnie said in his closing statement, it's all about love. Um, enjoy each other, enjoy, enjoy each other's company, enjoy your family, and please be safe. Wear a mask, and we will see you next Wednesday at one o'clock.